How can you mess that up? I don't know. It's just it's what happens when you have a socialist president. Um, all right. Uh, so what are we thinking of this? Here, you guys should move up. I mean, I know. No, you really? How come? <laughs> but it's it's so different today with such few people. But okay, no, no, all right. Um, what are we thinking? Book of Ephraim. No, <laughs> you didn't have to. I just meant that the people on the periphery could be at the table, but they different don't want kind to be. Of ghosts. Different kind of ghosts. Good. Um, does he exist? Why is <laughs> this again? You know, well, um, this again in one sense, which is not that Merrill is, he's certainly not writing two works with one set of words. It's not, whatever's going on, it's not an ambiguity. Um, what we, one way of describing what happens in Turn of the Screw is that we're aware of an ambiguity that the governess isn't. That is, if we think we don't know what happens in Turn of the Screw, then we think that um, we know something the governess doesn't about the situation, that we and James may know something, that, that um, uh, we may know something James knows, but the governess doesn't. Um, that's clearly not, not true about the Book of Ephraim. Um, we're not trying to figure out what it is that JM is missing. Um, we're asking the questions JM is asking. Uh, Marielle, were you going to say something? No. Okay. Um, so really it's a question, does JM, do JM and DJ think the ghost exists, Ephraim exists? Um, seems to. Seems to. Say more. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really see why he would continue the communication if he didn't think it existed in some capacity. Okay. Well, but the possibility is always there. It's just some projection of the raging human psyche. Uh huh. Which is kind of how I would read it. Um, and do you think they wouldn't read it that way? I don't know. I guess he would. He could. Another way of asking this is to ask Is JM simply James Merrill? Um, what do you think? Is this a true story? You have photos, front and back covers. Oh, no, sorry, inside, front and back end papers. Don't you? Oh, wait. Does this edition not have them? Oh, that's pretty sucky. There used to be photos in the earlier version of the Change Light at Sandover. Um, there are photos of various um, people who appear in the book. Um, Auden is one of them, of course. Um, but also, friend, sorry? I think I have that edition. You have that edition. Not on me. Not on you, <laughs> I notice. Um, Maria is one of them. Um, Maya Darren is a real person. Um, basically, most of the people, um, except obviously those in the novel, are real. Um, so DJ and JM are real. They lived in Stonington, as I said um, yesterday. <coughs> you can go to where they lived. You can see the things they talk about. You can see the um, room which used to have the flame, the matte flame ready mix paint until they, um, at the beginning of the second book, Mirabelle uh, Books of Number, 
Um, the first line of that is, oh, very well then. Um, the wallpaper, the, the, um, we have to put on new wallpaper. Um, oh, because it's zero. So it's the first number in Mirabelle, which goes zero through nine. Um, so um, lots of the places, the objects, the people, many of them, most of them are real. Um, so do we think that DJ and JM really did spend all these years with the Ouija board in touch with Ephraim, their familiar spirit? Or how much of that is true? So did DJ and JM, let's stop there, is that part true? Namely, you know, DJ and JM forever. DJ and JM, yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Um, spend many nights. Stop there. Spend many nights. Yes. Yeah. Um, at the Ouija board. Probably. <laughs> um, Maybe not many, but one or two at least. <laughs> one or two at least. Um, okay. Um, yeah. If, if the Ouija board like kind of makes random characters through the movement, they get pretty specific responses. Yeah. So when that either say it's fictionalized or say it's a fictionalized account when the ghost are real. The ghost is real. Um, well, the idea is that if you get talented with the Ouija board, as some people do, as some as some couples do, um, as some pairs of people do, um, it's like a talent for um, looking at Rorschach blots. Um, you know, imagine, I think I mentioned in this class the art of rock finding. You know what scholars' rocks are? Did we talk about this in this class? It may have been in a different class. Um, so, oh, it's in the, in the other class. Okay, so um, there's an art um, practice, um, a very ancient Chinese, not very ancient, it goes back to around 11 or 1200, um, both Chinese and Japanese art of um, finding interesting rocks. Um, if you go to um, the Asian galleries at the Museum of Fine Arts, you will see lots of really amazing scholars' rocks, as they're called. And what they are is it's a version of abstract art um, that's much, much older than Western 20th century abstract art. Um, because this art is the art of finding really interesting-looking rocks. And um, in Japan, Mount Fuji is a place that people go looking for those rocks and used to go looking for those rocks. Um, and um, there is an idea that the great artists, and this is the, this is the interesting um, uh, way of thinking about it, the great artists in this art form were the classical artists who really lived about 800 years ago, 900 years ago. And that since then, the art has degenerated. And there are no artists as great as the classical artists in finding these rocks. So think about what that means. It means that the greatness of the art is a greatness of being able to see things. That is, they don't do anything. It's not manual manipulation. It's not you know, like Raphael being able to paint really well um, and to have, a, or, or um, Giotto, who very famously was asked to show his skill as a painter um, before he got a commission. And um, 
what did he do? And he drew a perfect circle freehand, which is probably no one alive could now do. Um, so, but it's not that a certain technique or talent or training in um, skill, uh, in, in manual dexterity, which is part of classical art in general, um, whether you're a pianist or a harp, a harp player or a sculptor or a painter or um, whatever, um, this is pure um, skill in looking, as though seeing is an art also, and an art which requires extraordinary skill of a kind that's, that has disappeared since classical times. And um, doing that is, you could imagine, a generalization of that, which is that people who are really, really good at um, seeing meaning in the random, finding meaning in the random. Did you guys read the um, passage from Middlemarch? You won't, you won't have gotten that, so um, it might be worth pulling it up. Does anyone have? Um, no one even has their iPad today. Oh, OK. Did you read the passage no. which I sent to you? Um, OK, well, so good. So we should read it. Um, Wait, was it in the email? It's in lot. Yeah, I sent it to you through Latte. Just look at a message from me from Latte yesterday. So you can read it. So this is the beginning of a chapter in Middlemarch, and the narrator. How many people have read Middlemarch? No one. Um, did you read? You read it. Oh, okay. So you don't need this. Uh, have people read any George Eliot? I know some of you took Plotz's class. Did you not read George Eliot in that? Um, OK, well, she's, uh, you all know she's a she, right? OK, she's great. Uh, yeah, 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 good. Feel free to read it. Oh, I'm reading it? Yeah, you are. Um, so this is just, so what happens is George Eliot's narrator in Middlemarch, it's a third person narrative, but the, the omniscient narrative voice sometimes tells you stuff. Um, and sometimes speaks in the first person, even though he, because Middlemarch, the narrator is, if you had to give a gender to the narrator, it would be he. Um, he is um, reflecting on the novel that he is also telling us. So he begins a chapter like this. An eminent philosopher. Yeah, slowly, slowly, slowly. And pro project. <laughs> an eminent philosopher among my friends who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into the serene light of science has shown me this pregnant little fact. Your pure glass or extensive surface of polished steel made to be rubbed by a housemaid will be minutely and multitudinously, multitudinously, multitudinously scratched in all directions, but place now again, but place now against it a light, a lighted candle as a center of illumination, and lo, the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of, con of con concentric, concentric, concentric circles around that little sun. It is demonstrable that this, that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is your and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of this of the concentric arrangement. It's light fall it's light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are par are parable. These the scratches are events, and the candle is the egoism of any person of any person now absent. Okay, so the idea is that if you take random scratches, we said it before, but now. You, uh, I want to connect this to the idea of the scholar's rocks. You take random scratches, but they're everywhere. 
and, and in the dark, you hold a candle up against a reflecting surface, surface a pier glass, which is a mirror, or a polished steel mirror, um, which explains why it would be all scratched. It's much harder to scratch a glass mirror. Um, you hold up a candle to this reflecting surface, and the candle will only pick out a circle of, um, of the scratches. So the ones that you see when you hold the candle up to it are the ones that the candle itself is picking out. There's not really a circle there. There, or another way of putting it is to say there are an infinite number of circles, but also of every other possible kind of design. But the candle held up in the dark, the laws of light, the way the cone of light um, is, is projected by the candle, will hit the candle so that the an angle of incidence of the light and its angle of reflection come back to the eye in a perfect circle. What did so, we read earlier that referenced that? I just told you about that. But what we looked at yesterday was the candle haloing itself. This is in section N. Oh, right, right, the intimations of Yeah, okay. Um, so that idea then of the perfect circle um, is an idea of projection. You project meaning. You project something onto randomness which comes back to you as a meaning that seems to come from what you're looking at rather than from the projecting eye. Um, and that's going to be an image, one of several um, uh, images that are through lines throughout the Book of Ephraim. Um, that's why that amazing parentheses, Joanna closes Middlemarch downstairs. That's why is that there? so that Merrill wants you to remember that the moment of the candle haloing itself in the mirror. Um, remember that in section N? I mean, it's worth looking at um, exactly the language there. Um, I think this is your page 58. Um, what is it? 48. 48. Um, and, Le and Leo feels, why just that Eros knows, goes wherever they go, watches, cares, light-hearted, light at heart. Um, so light-hearted, that's just a word, but light at heart, it sounds like it's both an um, um, intensification of the idea of being light-hearted, that is light at heart, that's a really good way to be, whereas light-hearted is just a mood, but light at heart. That's what a person should strive to be in their lives. But also the idea of a light at the heart. So there's the idea of light, and then that immediately gets to this image from the novel, a candle haloing itself, the bedroom mirror's wreath of scratches, fiery fine as hairs, making sense for once of long attrition. So you make sense of attrition because the scratches are attriting the glass, and attrition is the loss of sense, the loss of meaning. Um, attrition means that things, meanings, everything else is rubbing away, eroding, leaving us only with randomness, with maximizing entropy. But the candle, for once in the darkness, makes sense of that attrition by projecting back a circle from these random entropic scratches. And the word he uses, beautiful verb, not a real verb, but he makes it a verb, is haloing itself. Why does he pick that verb? Why is halo such a good verb, such a good image there? Because 
What does it mean to halo? How is the candle haloing itself? What's it doing for itself? Wait, do you mean visually? Yeah, visually. It's making that little light. Yeah, yeah, it's making the circle around its own reflection. So what you would see is the in the mirror, you'd see the reflection of the candle, just a plain, pure candle reflected the way anything's reflected in a mirror. But around that, there'd also be this interference pattern caused by all the scratches, which would make a perfect circle. So you'd have a candle with a halo around it. You can imagine photographic versions of this. That is, if you take a picture, you know, with if water gets on the lens or something, or you take a picture where the where the lens is isn't perfectly clear or or into the sun, um, you would get the picture of the actual bright object, but also you get a halo effect around it. Um, so that's what's happening in the mirror. Why halo as a thematic word rather than simply a descriptive word? Who has halos? Angels, who are they? The dead. So the very idea that the halo, which connects to the dead, could be a projection from the living into the randomness of attrition, which is to say things simply being rubbed out, rubbed away, and rubbed out, and disappearing. That nevertheless, there was some way to make sense of that. But the sense-making part of it is pure projection. That, at least, is suggested by all the images of reflected light, where the reflection seems meaningful, but only because of the laws of optics not because there actually is meaning in the thing that the light is um, um, illuminating. So that's one through line of imagery, as you'll see in this poem. And then, of course, the brilliance of Joanna Close's Middle March Downstairs, we said at the very end of class yesterday, is that the parentheses, they're sometimes called lunuli because they look like crescent moons. Um, the parentheses are like the circle. So middle march is right in the middle of the parentheses. It is itself the candle that illuminates the circle that the parentheses draw or halo it with. And that's the passage from middle march that he wants us to remember. And which, because we know it so well, we did remember. <laughs> or which, at least, we remember because Rob just read it. Um, so um, one possibility. So what we have is DJ and JM, yes, definitely together. Um, spending many nights together, yes. Um, at the Ouija board, well, the answer is yes, they did. Um, years and years of it. In touch with, yes, they spent years and years um, at the Ouija board because really interesting things were happening when they were there, partly because they had extraordinary skill at letting randomness go in directions that looked aesthetically beautiful and meaningful. The same kind of skill, skill the finders of those rocks have. That is, they could see, whether consciously or unconsciously, they could see possibilities in the random motion of the cup and could 
um, encourage that motion in meaningful directions. And that idea that randomness can be encouraged into meaningful directions is a good description of formal poetry. That is to say, what formal, we actually talked about this in the other class history too, but what formal poetry is, poetry that rhymes, metrical poetry, what all writing is, but poetry most especially, is taking random features of language and putting them, seeing how they can be made to seem meaningful. So it's random in English that womb and tomb rhyme with each other. But that's a rhyme that a poet will find meaningful. Will say, oh look, there's a lot that you can get out of what looks like a random pairing. It's random that um, hate and fate go together. But that can determine you to say certain things, which put them together. Um, do you guys know what word golf is? So it's a game, I think it's actually invented by Nabokov. Um, it appears a lot in his totally great book, Pale Fire. Um, but the idea in word golf is that you take um, two words, same length, of, um, same length, two four-letter words, two six-letter words, or whatever, and you have to transform one word into the other by changing it a letter at a time, but only going through meaningful words. So, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's if you're bored on a car trip, it's kind of fun. Um, and then the idea is whoever can, um, tra who can, whoever can do the transformation um, in the fewest number of steps wins. But you always have to go through meaningful words. Um, so poetry, in a way, is a kind of word golf. That is, you take two words that are connected not because they mean, mean the same thing, but because they're the same length. And because there's a series of intermediate words between them that also are connected to them, not because they have any relation in meaning, but simply because for random um, reasons, those are words in English. So what does Merrill do? He has a little poem where, which is just word golf, and it's changing lead to what word do you think? Lead. No, nice, but it's not a rhymed word. Gold. Ah. Yeah. So that's language's alchemy, is to change lead to gold through the randomness of word golf. Um, so I think you could probably change word to golf, but it would be less interesting. Um, change golf to gold. Um, change gold to geld change geld to weld. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do this in my head. Um, but he can do lead to gold in word golf. He does it in three steps. Um, so that's just great. But again, that's what poets do, especially formal poets. There, is, there are random features of language 
that you make meaningful. And um, it's that meaning-making activity that they're doing with the Ouija board. Here are these letters. And what do they do? They, through a kind of skill, um, a go-with-the-flow skill, because that's what it means to move the marker, the cup at the Ouija board, is you let it go, but you let it go in the direction you want it to go. It's almost a martial, it's almost like a Tai Chi skill. Um, if you know Tai Chi as a martial art, it's the most, um, it's the least aggressive of the martial arts. What you do in Tai Chi is you let your opponent do whatever your opponent is doing, um, and you just tweak it the slightest bit so that your opponent defeats him or herself. Um, tai Chi is an art of going with the flow. I mean, it's all about flows. Has anyone ever done Tai Chi? Other I've martial done arts? The, um, slightly more violent. Taekwondo? Uh, no. Oh. Uh, Wushu. Yeah. Um, well, at any rate, if you ever do it with, with um, um, someone who's serious about it as, as a spiritual discipline and, and not only as self-defense, um, it's all about thinking about flows. Flows through your own body, flows... Um, um, that others do, um, that, that your opponent is doing. Look at section K. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but you're going to be reading all this over vacation. Um, and here's another example of that. I think this is a crucial one. Um, he and DJ are, the two of them are traveling around the world. Um, so K is, what page is that in yours? 36. Um, and Ayako, we know from Dramatis Personae, is a dead friend of theirs. So, kimonoed in red gold, what do you think that means? Kimono. Yeah, which means? Dressed. Yeah, robed. In red gold, swirls before pine, Ayako sights us through a pale bronze disc, half mirror and half gong, hanging at Kamakura in the shrine. Um, so how is she kimonoed in red gold? Bronze of the, the bronze of the mirror. So she is seeing them through the mirror from the other world because the dead look at us through mirrors. Um, and she sees DJ and JM when they go visit this shrine at Kamakura. Um, and what's on the kimono? Pine trees and in front of the pine trees? Well, it says. Swirls. Swirls. Yeah, so, so, so maybe water. Um, you know, some half abstract, half natural um, uh, design on a kimono. Uh, the first, I'll just read this to you. Um, it's unfortunate that this book no longer exists. That is, that this book, Divine Comedies, is no longer in print and hasn't been in print for 30 years or so. Well, maybe not, but um, yeah. Okay, fifth printing, October 85. I think that was the last printing. Um, because this book, Divine Comedies, whose who's title, the reference you get to Dante, um, this book... Is um, contains nine short poems which are relevant to uh, the Book of Ephraim, which is then most of what this book is. Um, those nine short poems include the will, 
which uh, I mentioned to you yesterday, which is in Section A, um, include an amazing poem called Lost in Translation, which you have in the Norton Anthology. Um, a couple of other great poems, but the first one is called The Kimono, and it's a poem about metaphor. And I'll just read it to you. We won't discuss it, but I'll read it to you. Um, when I returned from Lover's Lane, my hair was white as snow. Joy, incomprehension, pain, I'd seen like seasons come and go. How I got home again, frozen half dead, perhaps you know. So he's an old man. He's returned from Lover's Lane, and now he's old. He'd seen all these different aspects of love, joy, incomprehension, pain. But he got home again, frozen half dead, but he did get home. And perhaps you know that is you, presumably the person he loves, presumably DJ. You hide a smile and quote a text. Desires ungratified persist from one life to the next. Hards we strip ourselves beside long, long ago were axed on blueprints of consuming pride. So that's a hard stanza, and we just won't pause over it. Um, but then the last stanza. Times out of mind, the bubble gleam to our charred level drew April back, a sudden beam. Keep talking, and this is the part I really want you to hear, this kind of haiku that ends the poem. Keep talking while I change into the pattern of a stream bordered with rushes white on blue. So is that a metaphor or is it literal? The answer is yes. He's literally changing into a kimono. The pattern of a stream bordered with rushes white on blue. He's putting it on. He's back home, and now he's putting on his kimono. But it's also a metaphor. I was a person, but as in Ovid, I am changing into a stream, which is what characters in Ovid do all the time. So it's a beautiful little image of the kimono. Now it's picked up here as Ayako, is kimonoed in the mirror. Well, kimonoed in the mirror because she's like the candle. Remember the very strange ending of, well, you won't remember, but the puzzling ending of the passage um, from Middlemarch is that Eliot says the candle is like an absent person. And she's absent. She's dead. But what do they see? They see her kimonoed in the mirror in the shrine at Kamakura. So swirls before pine, that's maybe what the kimono looks like. Maybe there's a pine reflected in the mirror, a pine branch as decoration. And there's swirls in the mirror also. What's the other joke in swirls before pine? Pearls before swine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, you know what that's called? Every crooked nanny? No? Really? No, there was a term for it. Yeah, Spoonerism. Spoonerism? Yeah, because there was a guy named Richard Spooner who was, um, that's why it's called a Spoonerism. It's not, you want to think, oh, well, a spoon. Hmm. Is it a Coke spoon or a cereal spoon? <laughs> uh, how high are they? Um, but no, it's, um, 
there was a guy named Spooner who's an Oxford Don who would always make mistakes like that, sometimes very embarrassing. So you know some of the dirty jokes that you've heard in junior high school um, that in this day of political correctness I can't even allude to. But the, the jokes are, um, there's an innocent phrase, but you have to realize what would happen if you just switched two letters um, back and forth in that innocent phrase. Um, and those are spoonerist. Those are spoonerisms. Why a spoonerism in an account? It's a beautiful one, swirls before pine. Why that when you look in the mirror? Sorry? Pining over. <laughs> nice. Um, why, why formally? That is, why would that be a good use of language? Um, It's reflective, um, but what else does it do? It reverses. So it's a kind of metaphor of mirror reversal. Um, obviously, the perfect metaphor of mirror reversal would be something like um, a palindrome, which is what we talked about yesterday. Um, but that would also get old really fast. Um, but it's a gesture, just the subtlest kind of gesture the gesture of a very subtle art by gesturing towards mirror reversal. You look in the mirror and everything is reversed. If you go, keep, keep your finger at section K, but notice what the epigraph or motto to um, the Book of Ephraim is. Um, anyone know Italian? So it's from Dante. Um, Tu credi il vero che i minori e grandi di questa vita miranno nello speglio in che prima che pensi il pensiero pandi, which is my terrible Italian. Um, but what it means is you believe the truth. That is, Dante is being told by Beatrice, um, you understand correctly what's going on here, what you believe is true, that the lesser and the greater of this life look into the mirror in which before you think your thought is displayed. So that Beatrice is telling Dante the answer to the mystery of where do our thoughts come from. And that answer is you look in a mirror, and your thought is in the mirror, and then it's in your mind. But does that mean that your thoughts come from elsewhere? Well, it does for Beatrice, but Merrill, who is reflecting himself, here's the cover, by the way, a non-reflecting mirror. I once puzzled over why photographs of mirrors didn't reflect. It felt like they should. Um, there's another really interesting mirror puzzle, which is why do mirrors reverse left and right but not up and down? So um, you can either think that's stupid or you can be freaked out by the question. Um, better to be freaked out by it. But at any rate, the idea is, so how is it that your thoughts come to you from a mirror? And the answer must be, for Merrill, something like, that is holding Middlemarch up to the mirror of Dante, the answer must be something like, um, your angle 
on a world, a random world that reflects yourself back to you, produces your own randomness, is reflected back to you as coherence, which only appears in your own mind. So the mirror, the Ouija board is clearly a mirror. That's why Ephraim looks at them through a mirror. Doesn't mean he doesn't exist, but it's worth seeing that this is thematically something that is there from the start. The question of how you make sense of long attrition. Well, you do it the way they make sense of what happens on the Ouija board. So if you, again, finishing, the, go to the next stanza in section K. Um, from the Osaka puppets, we are learning what to be moved so have people ever seen Bunraku, ever seen um, Japanese puppet theater? It's quite an amazing thing to see. I feel that there was a, actually um, maybe a Mission Impossible that um, there was a quick scene of Bunraku in. Um, if you ever get a chance to see it when done by masters, you should see it. So the way it works is, um, it's actually quite extraordinary, is that there are three puppeteers. Um, there's the master who, you know, you have to, it's like, it's like being a fifth degree black belt. Um, you have to really um, have mastered the art to be a master. And he has two assistants. Um, I think they're all male. Um, I don't know that there are any female Bunraku puppeteers. Um, and they appear on stage, um, all in black. The master is not hooded, so you can see the master's face. Um, but the two assistants are hooded, so they're all in black, including black hoods and, and black masks, so you can't see their face. And um, they do no or no-like dramas with puppets that are about this big. And to say that they're puppets isn't quite right. They're not marionettes, um, but they're not puppets in the sense of putting, they're not sock puppets, they're not puppets that you put your hand in. What they are is very mobile dolls that are, as I say, about that big. And what they do is they just move the dolls around on stage, and the dolls interact with each other. And the interacting of the dolls, and then they say the words, um, but it sounds very quickly as though the words are coming out of the dolls' mouths. And what happens is, for about the first five minutes, you're watching the puppeteers. And then they disappear. And they're there. It's just they are completely affectless. And their motions are very, very slight. And you're not, in looking at them, you're not feeling like you're looking at human beings interacting. Um, you lose interest in them. But in the meantime, these puppets are doing amazing things. And they're interacting with each other passionately. And they're speaking with great passion. Um, you know, when you have those uh, ventriloquists, um, um, what's his name, McCarthy, uh, you know, those spooky, oh no, horror movie ventriloquists, the art of ventriloquism is sort of a version of that, which is to say that um, you have the ventriloquist dummy who's just wildly saying all sorts of things, and the person who's really saying those things, the ventriloquist, is looking completely neutral as uh, this passionate voice is coming out of the dummy, so we don't ascribe it to the ventriloquist who's actually really speaking. Um, 
so um, Charlie Bergen, that's his name, and his dummy was No, Charlie McCarthy. Is it Charlie McCarthy? I think Charlie McCarthy's the puppet. Yeah, and, and so, Ber- but Bergen, it's, it's Candace Bergen's father, actually. Right. Um, what's his first name, though? Uh, I thought it was, okay. Anyhow, um, so imagine that done seriously, not as horror, but as these puppets come to life, and the people who are moving them are, just disappear from your experience of what's going on on stage. I mean, it's extraordinary. You can't pay attention to the humans. They become so inconspicuous as not to be there. Um, it's the trick some of the witches have in his dark materials. Um, they're able to be so inconspicuous that they get noticed, but then the people noticing them stop noticing them immediately. Um, I think Pullman gets it from Boon Rocket, actually. Um, so that is what they go see, and they are learning what to be moved means. So who's being moved when they go see the puppets? Why would, that, why would go, going to see this kind of puppet show teach you what it means to be moved? Because you're watching a motion that's strong enough that it doesn't necessarily have to pertain to a human. Yeah, and you're watching these puppets that seem to come to life that are animated? Yeah. I mean, you think it's, I don't know if this is a stretch or if this is where you're going with it, but it, to compare it to what they do with the Ouija board. Yeah, of course. They are the, they are the puppeteers and these, these spirits that communicate with the puppets. Yeah. They forget, they forget that all they're really talking to is themselves. Exactly. The of the interaction. Exactly. They're the hooded figures, and they forget about themselves. Right, exactly. So the cup in the Ouija board moves the way the puppets move. And what's, yeah, Rachel. Have you also come up with, so like, if you're talking about this idea of like your thoughts projected onto you from the mirror, because it's almost like, I mean, I'm kind of like articulating this. Um, I feel like it's almost as though, like, it's almost like you're watching your puppet, like, tell you what you want it to. Like, yeah. It's almost like you are the puppet watching what you want to be able to secure, I guess. Like, uh huh. All ties in my head. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think maybe this is this is how it would tie in, which is okay. So one of the great, um, maybe the greatest of the Bunraku pieces is one called the Love Suicides at Chikamatsu. So these puppets kill themselves for love. Um, there are three of them, and there's um, you know there's some lovers and a jealous figure, and eventually the lovers kill themselves. Um, just knowing that little, but knowing that that must be a very sad, and <coughs> it is a very sad play, puppet play. Um, what else could to be moved mean? We're learning what to be moved means. What else could that line mean? Yeah. Just to be emotionally Yes. Exactly. That is, oh, that's what it means to be moved. I've never wept so much as I've just wept looking at this play. Now I know what art can do. God, that was moving. So again, moving the puppets, moving the cup, and being moved by those motions. 
that's what's being focused into that phrase. So go back now. Um, as you will see um, in section I, um, we are going to be asked to consider, um, this is at the end of section I, um, two pages in. Um, near the top of the page, JM, five lines down. It's the line begins over a widening area, but that's the end of the sentence. Then right after that. The question of who or what we took Ephraim to be and of what truths, if any, we considered him spokesman had arisen from the start. So that's the question. What did they take Ephraim to be? And the rest of the page is going to be the different possibilities. Um, well, let's go through it. Then we can go back um, for a couple minutes to at least section B. Um, if he had blacked out reason, or vice versa, if reason blacked him out, on first sight, we instinctively avoided facing the eclipse with naked eye. So if he blacks out reason, he eclipses reason. We don't look at that eclipse with naked eye. Why not? What have you been taught to do in a full solar eclipse or not to do? Yeah, you can't look straight into it because um, the ultraviolet light will blind you. That's why they're dangerous. So we don't look at that eclipse of reason with the naked eye. Um, early attempts to check what he let fall failed. E's grasp of dates and places being feeble as ours. So he gets dates and places as wrong as we do. Um, his Latin, like my own, vestigial. So his Latin isn't very good, neither is JM's. Even D knew better German. So his German isn't very good either, since David Jackson's German is even better than Ephraim's. As through smoked glass, that is looking at the eclipse through the kind of glass that you can look at through. Smoked glass is um, glass that is dark enough that you can, that it's the sort of thing that scientists will use to look at eclipses. As through smoked glass, we charily observed either that his memory was spotty, well, whose wouldn't be after 2,000 years? So what do they want to believe? That Ephraim is 2,000 years old. Yeah, and that he exists, and they're making excuses for him. He doesn't seem to know anything that they don't know. His German is worse than theirs. His Latin, no better, um, even though it was presumably one of his languages. But, you know, it's 2,000 years. Cut the guy a break. Um, or that his lights and darks were a projection of what already burned at some obscure level or another in our skulls, burned like a candle. Candle, um, candle in a skull, very Halloween-y, shadows of death being projected through the, through the eyes of the skull onto a mirror or onto a wall. We, so here's what he might be, we, all we knew, dreamed, felt, and had forgotten, flesh-made word became, what, what's that allusion to, by the way, the idea of the flesh-made word? What's, it's, a rever, it's another mirror reversal. Word made flesh, anyone know what that is? Matthew? Uh, Book of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and then the word was made flesh. That's the incarnation of Jesus. 
but he's the flesh-made word. We, all we knew, dreamed, felt, and had forgotten flesh-made word became through him a set of quasi-grammatical constructions which could utter some things clearly, forcibly, others not. Like Tosca, that is the opera, hadn't we lived for art and love? Most famous aria in Tosca begins, I lived for art, I lived for love. I would sing it to you, but you would hate me forever. <laughs> we were not tough or literal-minded or unduly patient with those who were, hadn't from books from living. The profusion dawned on us of languages, any one of which to who could read it, lit up the system it conceived. So you conceive of a system. You have a language for it. You light it up, and suddenly it's as though there's meaning there. What kinds of languages? Bird flight, that is augury. Hallucinogen. You take a hallucinogen, and suddenly the world seems to make sense. Chorale and horoscope each its own world, hypnotic, many-sided facet of the universal gem. Ephraim's revelations, we had them for comfort, thrills, and chills. Material, that is material to write about. He didn't cavil. He was the revelation. Or if we had created him, then we were. So, yeah, maybe they did create him. Probably. The point was, the point, one twinkling point by now of thousands, was never to forgo in favor of plain, dull proof, the marvelous nightly pudding. What's the joke? I mean, I just thought it was them saying it matter. It doesn't matter. And what's the joke also? The plain, dull proof, the marvelous nightly pudding. Why pudding? Tapioca. Wasn't that the English word for dessert? You've never heard the phrase, the proof of the pudding? Uh, <laughs> Sorry? The proof of the pudding, really? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. That is how you know. There's a, there are two sayings. One is the proof of the pudding is in the broth. That is what will make the pudding good is what's, what goes into it. And the other is the proof of the pudding is in the eating, which is however the, the pudding will be proved good or bad by how it tastes when you have it. doesn't matter um, what it looks like. It's what the experience of it is. Okay, have a good break. Part of it is like the proof is in the pudding. Um, I don't think that, I think that's a, um, a mess up, yes.